This week on an extra exciting Geek Explained, we're celebrating the end of an era by not only extensively reviewing X-Men Dark Phoenix, but also expertly ranking every single X-Men film, from the expendable to the exceptional. Hey, did I get enough X-Puns in? Yes? No? Welcome back to Geeksplain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we Geeksplain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is all about the X-Men. Specifically, the X-Men held by Fox. That's right, the X-Men Cinematic Universe. Uh, we're going to be talking about the newest film and the final film in the X-Men Cinematic Universe, Dark Phoenix, as well as officially ranking every single X-Men film ever. Also, we have our normal news segment, as well as our weekly review, and finally, this week's Comics Countdown. All of that is coming for you today, but we are going to kick it off with our new segment, and there is a lot. There's a lot going on. Uh, first of all, the big thing, I want to get it right out of the way because um, it's just going to make me sad if I wait to talk about it. Uh, Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing has been officially canceled by DC Universe after only one season and after really only one episode. They didn't even let the series last a week before officially canceling it, uh, putting out press releases and everything, citing creative differences. Uh, there's a lot of rumor going on on why this actually happened. Um, part of me uh, believes that it could be a number of different things, but some of the reports are saying that it was too expensive, um, people just didn't get it, uh, people are saying that the... Uh, the production had a lot of misfires and a lot of uh, bad stuff happening during the uh, basically building the series. But then there are people who are saying that people loved it. I, I know for sure I really enjoyed the first episode and it got critical acclaim from what I could see. Um, I, I didn't see a whole lot of bad uh, reactions to the first episode, a lot of positivity. Uh, even James Wan, legendary horror director and producer James Wan, uh, who had a big hand in shaping this series seemed kind of blindsided by the whole thing. Uh, there are reports that possibly the CW might pick it up, or uh, HBO might pick it up. I'm hoping for HBO because they got big budget stuff and they love their horror. Uh, see Chernobyl and others for that. But I'm just, I'm really bummed. Uh, this does come amid reports that uh, Warner Brothers may be looking to uh, close shop on the DC Universe streaming service which i think would be a total shame um yeah they've had a little bit of uh misfires here and there uh titans wasn't really what i think a lot of people wanted it to be but they're in the middle of filming season two right now so um 
I don't know. It's it's a strange time to be a DC fan with all the stuff that's going on there. But uh, yeah, so I'll keep you guys updated. It's sad. Uh, we will continue to review Swamp Thing. They are committed to releasing all 10 episodes of this season, which was originally 13. But um, yeah, so I'm really bummed about that. I really enjoyed the first episode, and I feel like they've they still have a lot of legs left. Um, there's also been some rumors that the plan for Swamp Thing was to be three seasons and then spin off into a uh, miniseries for the Justice League Dark, a la the Defenders for Netflix, which would have been super cool, especially if they brought back uh, Matt... Um, Oh my god, I'm forgetting his name, but Constantine. So uh, if they brought Constantine, Zatanna, if they brought in more of those characters, Madame Xanadu, the whole deal, um, I think it would have been really cool and it would have explored a side of comic book films that aren't really being explored, which is the horror aspect. There's a lot of horror in the Marvel and DC universes and the fact that you know, they canceled this because whether it was too expensive or creative differences or whatever is a shame. And I think it sucks that they're being, their knees are kind of being cut out from under them. So that is that. Um, also with uh, DC, Wonder Woman 84 released its first trailer showing uh, Diana and all of her golden armored glory. Uh, a lot of people recognize this armor from the comics. I'm kind of hoping she gets the headdress and the wings, but we'll see. I thought it looked really cool. Uh, Patty Jenkins has even said that uh, the film's ready to go, essentially, and she's bummed about the delay because initially it was supposed to come out end of this year, but they pushed it back to, I believe, summer of next year. And she's already saying like, oh man, I wish we hadn't uh, delayed it because I'm ready to show everybody now. So we'll see. Hopefully the delays mean that we're going to get the best product and everyone seems to be really excited about it. So I'm really excited about it as well. In other film news, there are rumors going on right now that we talked about last week about the Supergirl film that's currently in development. Uh, rumors are right now that the... Uh, plans currently are for Supergirl to kind of relaunch the Kryptonian side of the DC universe, which means we might be getting a new Superman. We're not sure yet. Um, sources are saying, anonymous sources of course, are saying that uh, Henry Cavill is gone from the role of Superman, which sucks. Um, I rewatched uh, Mission Impossible Fallout recently again, and he's just, he's a treasure. And I'm really bummed. I'm really bummed about that if that is true, but we'll see. We'll continue to uh, monitor this situation. Uh, speaking of Warner Brothers, they uh, have definitively said that no DC films or anything like that will be shown at uh, San Diego Comic-Con, which sucks. Warner Brothers has, I think, pretty consistently the last year or two uh, been killing it and claiming uh, San Diego Comic-Con for its own. So the fact that they're not even throwing their hat in the ring this year is, uh, is sad. But the reason that they're doing it apparently is that all of the Warner Brothers films, since they are leaning really heavily into uh, darker, grayer, and uh, horror properties this year, they are going to save all their stuff for their own Scare Diego event, which is a Warner Brothers event that is also being held in San Diego, I think like maybe a month later. So it looks like uh, San Diego Comic-Con isn't going to be, you know, the big uh, entertainment uh, 
news piece that it has been the last few years. So we'll see. Marvel is still kind of, nah, we don't really know, uh, but we'll see. Black Adam also found its director officially, and it is uh, Jaume Colette Serra. I know I said that wrong, and I apologize. I'm not super familiar with a lot of his work. I'm looking at his IMDb right now, and it looks like he directed House of Wax, uh, Disney's Goal 2, Living the Dream, Orphan. Okay, I watched Orphan. Orphan was good. Um, Unknown and Run All Night, uh, films featuring Liam Neeson. And, oh, okay, so he... uh, he also uh, is directing Disney's Jungle Cruise, which is in post-production right now. So um, I guess that makes sense why uh, he's directing this. If uh, Dwayne liked what he did with Jungle Cruise, wanted to bring him on for this. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I'm not exactly sure. We need to know more about it, I think. On uh, other movie news, this one is kind of cool. Um Apparently, there were uh, rumblings way, way back that um, before Fox kind of fell apart with its X-Men and its uh, Fantastic Four franchises, that there was going to be a kind of uh, X-Men versus Fantastic Four kind of Civil War film. And I think this is really, really, really cool. And the article that I'm kind of pulling this from is uh, from Screen Rant. And apparently, way back... uh, Back in 2010, you know, almost uh, 10 years ago, by God, um, it's saying that Fox considered building towards a uh, crossover movie that was basically going to end up being X-Men versus the Fantastic Four, and they describe it as Civil War for the Fox Marvel characters, where uh, basically the, essentially like the uh, blueprint for the original Civil War in, uh, in the comics would be there where like uh johnny storm would be fighting molecule man in the middle of manhattan and uh, he would accidentally go nova and basically blow a hole in manhattan that would spark the superhero registration act and that's basically where the uh the fantastic four would go up against the x-men and uh, they describe one matchup being wolverine versus mr fantastic and the way that they are uh describing how it goes down uh i'm pulling a direct quote here reed richard uh pinning wolverine down extending his hands until they're one molecule wide and using them as scissors to cut the mutant's arms off like what the hell um apparently the film would end with a uh kind of a ceasefire near the end and everything would be, you know, peaceful, tranquil, whatever. And then a post-credit scene would tease uh, Secret Invasion with the Skrulls. So that sounds really interesting. I think it would be a cool idea. I don't I don't think we're going to see anything like it uh, now that both of them are under the Marvel banner, but we'll see. Um, I think it would have been cool at the time. I think with Civil War having come out, Captain America Civil War and all that stuff, it would feel derivative if we did that again, so obviously they're not going to go that route, but we may see them interacting later on. I mean, teams have, uh, the teams have crossed over multiple times in the comics and in other properties as well, so you never know, you never know. 
Um, we also had E3 this past weekend. So E3, big gaming convention here in LA. I was unfortunately not able to attend, but I got like the main talking points. So uh, there's a ton of stuff that happened and I know I'm gonna miss a couple things. So if there's something that you feel that I missed that's super, super important, uh, feel free to let me know on any of our social media, uh, Twitter or Instagram at GeeksplainedPod, that's at GeeksplainedPod, or through email to geeksplained at gmail.com because, of course, I am an old man and I still read emails. So uh, the big talking points for me, the ones that I really am excited about, uh, first off, the Avengers Project, uh, simply titled the Marvel's The Avengers now by uh, Square Enix, made its debut with a couple different uh, trailers and clips for a big um big reveal on e3 uh the story seems to be there was uh the avengers are getting ready to uh, unveil this new helicarrier using this experimental property in san francisco and then uh an accident happens and the Helicarrier basically explodes, taking out part of the city. Avengers are blamed, uh, even though, of course, it's outside sources and they're framed for this. Uh, picks up years later, and now with a new threat, the Avengers have to reassemble. Uh, the trailer, I say this knowing and having complete faith in Square Enix. I love so much of their properties. I know that they've worked very, very hard on this and that they're putting everything that they can into this. Um, knowing that and knowing how much I love these characters, how much I've been wanting an Avengers game for the longest time, I was a little underwhelmed by the, uh, by the trailer. I thought uh, the visuals looked interesting, the gameplay, they didn't really give us any. It was like little bits and pieces here, like uh, woven into the cinematic trailer, but we don't really know how it plays. Um, some of the design elements, I recognize that they're trying to move away from the MCU Avengers and make this kind of their own thing, and Square Enix has the complete license to do that. But uh, certain designs, like, I I do not like Captain America's design one bit. I just don't. Um, I really like Thor's design. I think he looks really cool. Um, different things, different graphical things that I think definitely need to be tweaked. And I'm sure that this is all going to change. Like, visuals and everything, they're going to change a lot between now and its release next year. But... Overall, I wasn't super impressed. I was really hoping they were going to have more for us, especially since um, the game is less than a year away. But I will keep the faith. I know Square Enix loves this property. They really want to do right by the fans and by um, themselves for putting out a competent and really excellent product so we'll see um i really want it to be good again i wasn't super impressed i'm interested in the story uh they're taking a lot of creative license which i like uh they've also described that uh there will be dlc uh coming out for like different characters and different maps and that it will all be free which is great uh no paid dlc they did say that there won't be any loot boxes either which i'm super excited about in this uh in this 
current gaming landscape where loot boxes seem to be everywhere. It won't be part of this game, which is great. They've also uh, talked about both single player in campaign and co-op, whether that's, I don't know if that's going to be in the campaign or in other uh, missions, but it, from what they described, it's going to be teams of four going off on different missions. Uh, maybe similar to like a destiny thing where they're because they said something about continuous uh story continuous gameplay continuous campaign so they're going to be uh constantly updating it uh it sounds really cool again i just i want gameplay i want to know what it how it plays i want to know what the systems are if they have it as a uh four four-person team and they're going to be rpg elements how are we looking at that when it comes to team composition are there certain roles certain characters will play we just don't know enough and i was really hoping to get more um, again some of the design elements i know are going to change there's going to be tweaking of course but again i was a little underwhelmed and i'm hoping that they bounce back after the reception that they got from e3 uh, in other news for Marvel games, uh, Ultimate Alliance 3 drops next month. I'm super excited for that one. It's it's weird because I'm more excited for that game right now than I am for uh, Marvel's The Avengers. Hopefully that changes. Um, I'm really excited for Ultimate Alliance 3. I know a lot of people are like, nah, it doesn't look as good. But like, I, I love the original Ultimate Alliance games and this looks like a throwback to the very first Ultimate Alliance game. It's going to be on the Switch. So that should be fun. They did announce uh, a DLC or an expansion pack that's going to include uh, characters and other um, uh, assets from Marvel Knights. So we're talking Defenders, Elektra, Daredevil, Iron Fist, those kind of guys. Uh, the X-Men, you know who they are. We're talking about them a lot this episode. And the Fantastic Four. So I'm really excited. I really want these games to be good so that we get more of them. But we will see. In other Square Enix news, they fully gave... They spent all of their money into putting on the best kind of unveiling for uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake, which looks stunning. It really does. Gameplay looks solid. The cuts scenes look great the graphics are amazing this is going to be a great game um oh by the way uh, avengers uh marvel's the avengers drops on i think it's may 16th 2020 let me make sure i'm gonna fact check that real quick may 15th may 15th uh 2020 is when this drops so we'll see in the uh just less than a year what they do with that um for final fantasy 7 um that looks really good too um i am looking up right now i should have written this down on my notes um but the release date for that is March 3rd of 2020. And we also got the first trailer for Kingdom Hearts 3 DLC. Uh, this DLC is entitled Remind, and the trailer looks really interesting, uh, posing the question of uh, who is Luxord. So it looks like we're going to get a little deep dive into Luxord. He might be more important than we originally thought. And uh, it looks like we're getting some gameplay at least in the trailer, with uh, other playable characters such as Riku, Aqua, and my boy, Roxas. Um, if we get to play as Roxas, I am going to absolutely scream. I'm really excited about that. The DLC looks interesting. We'll see how that goes, and that does release this winter. Uh, in Nintendo news, uh, Zelda 
Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is officially getting a sequel. Uh, I believe this is the first time in uh, in Legend of Zelda history where they're getting or they're doing a direct sequel of a Zelda game rather than uh, using the same assets or using uh, similar um, uh, using similar gameplay design all that stuff it is actually legitimately a sequel so it is going to be breath of the wild 2 or however they decide to title it um i'm excited i really enjoyed uh the first breath of the wild game uh i haven't beaten it i haven't played as much as i would like to but from what i have played i really enjoy it and i'm looking forward to this uh they also announced luigi's mansion 3 which is exciting as well, as well as uh, announcing a Dragon Quest character for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. But the big, I think the big winner, the big winner for E3 this year was Cyberpunk 2077. Um, this game has been hyped up and hyped up and hyped up and hyped up for a long time, ever since it made its first... Uh, uh, first reveal at a previous E3, everybody's been waiting for this game. No one knows exactly how it's going to play, what the um, whole game is going to be about, but the world just looks stunning, it looks beautiful, and a fresh new face has been added to the game. The trailer that dropped was um, really, really great, uh, looks amazing, it's all from an in-game engine, and it looks stunning, but the big newsworthy headline was that at the very end of the trailer, uh, it seems like your mentor or whatever picks you up, and it's Keanu freaking Reeves, looking as John Wick as he possibly could while also being a cyborg. So we all know now that Keanu Reeves is going to be a full-on cyborg come 2077, and I don't hate it. I love that. Um, if nothing else, this has gotten me more excited for the game. Having Keanu essentially looks like be your partner in crime, if not your mentor character, is fantastic. He actually came out and gave the whole uh, reveal for it, did uh, some of the breakdowns. It sounds amazing. I'm really excited for this game. It's going to be great, and it launches officially on April 16th, 2020. Um, a lot of these games, I'm kind of sad that they're not coming out until next year. But uh, we got really spoiled in 2018, so 2019, I guess, is kind of our buffer year. Um, we also got a first look at Watch Dogs Legion, which I guess is Watch Dogs 3. Uh, the thing that I'm really interested in in, uh, in that, we're going to wrap up the new segment here, um, is the play as anyone or be anyone or play anyone mechanic where every NPC that is randomly generated in the game you can uh, take over and play as. I think it's a really cool idea. We've never seen that before, and I'm really hoping that it ends up being really cool. I've enjoyed... Uh, I never played the second one, but I really like the first Watch Dogs. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But that is it for the current news. Uh, we are now going to jump straight into our main course, our entree, if you will, of this week's episode. Episode, which is a full-on Dark Phoenix review, as well as officially ranking the XCU. God, I just, I love, I love that music. I love everything about that music, that cartoon. Um, just amazing. Just incredible. 
So, uh, this is your official Dark Phoenix review. Um, X-Men Dark Phoenix officially dropped, released, uh, last week. And the box office numbers are not good. Um... Officially, the uh, box office for the opening weekend came in at $33 million, which is the lowest of the entire franchise. Um, not great. Not great. Reviews have been really, really bad. Um, and a lot of people, I think, are of two minds whenever you hear like reviews or anything like this. And that's like, A, um, God, this is just the worst, you know piece of garbage i've ever seen in my entire life or b like it's not good but i'm just happy that it's all over and um i'm going to be probably leaning a little bit towards the latter but there are some real bad parts of this film um we'll get into it uh first thing i want to get out the good stuff i really want to get out the good stuff um, I have to say the first act, the entire first act of the film in a typical three-act structure, uh, them going up into space, the whole deal, uh, they're coming back. I just, I really enjoyed it. It felt like um, school, it felt like them being on a team, it felt like an X-Men film, and it felt like almost an episode of an X-Men cartoon. You know, the, uh, you know, space shuttle whatever is like you know stranded in the atmosphere gotta send up the x-men they don't know if their jet's gonna get up there but they're gonna do their best and they're all working as a team getting people together getting them uh, off the shuttle phoenix force comes in looking like some weird purple energy i guess um hits gene while she's on the shuttle uh, she survives, they bring her back, the whole deal. Um, I just loved the first act. It felt kinetic. It felt like the natural progression following Days of Future Past, Apocalypse, and Into Here. Um, and I, for one, I will say, and I'm probably in the minority here, I like the uniforms. I like the minimalist uh, blue or you know navy and gold design. Reminds me of... Um, New X-Men, I believe that was Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley uh, doing the X-Men when their uniforms were simple, but I think they really, I, I just really liked it. I enjoyed the costumes, how, their simplicity, everybody looked like they're on the same team, and um, yeah, we could have had different flares and everything like the uh, costumes in the first couple X-Men films, which were all one uniform but had different flares for each character, but I really liked it. I thought it was... Um, Especially in the context of the film where, you know, Professor X has been really trying to make the X-Men like a thing and like trying to make them like a popular, like in the public eye and they all wear the same uniforms or all on the same team kind of deal. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting. I really liked that. I will have to say a couple of the MVPs here. Sophie Turner actually did really good. Um... The big thing in the first few uh, Game of Thrones seasons was how weak Sophie Turner was as an actress. And uh, even though I came onto the series a little bit later than everybody else, I absolutely agree. But here I thought she did really well. I thought um, she really played the bipolar aspects of the character, even if the writing didn't make sense why. Uh, I really enjoyed her. I thought she did a great job here. It's sad because um, this is the end for her character, but I really liked what she did. Also, um, Charles Xavier. 
James McAvoy is a treasure. He is a phenomenal actor, but the character assassination that they did on him in this film is uh, is frustrating because they really they've already gone through this whole like oh he's kind of you know freaking terrible but he has a redemption act in um in days of future past and i didn't like what they did here um it felt like a regression of the character yes uh comics xavier is an awful human being who has cut a lot of corners and made a lot of compromises to see that his quote-unquote dream uh, carries on, but not this Xavier. This Xavier um, has been, for the most part, a great guy who is just um, kind of pushed into shitty circumstances, and I don't like what they did to his character here. It felt like they were going a different direction, and it felt like they were really... Um, not doing him a service here. And also, on a side note, the fact that this takes place in the 90s is completely um, just goth, gone. Um, I you, you would never be able to tell that this was part of the 90s if you didn't really like zone in on like specific stuff. If you have to go looking for it, um, I don't think that it matters. I think they could have kept this in the 70s or the 80s and it would have had the same exact impact. Um, I realized they were trying to complete the circle and everything and I uh, get what they were going for, but it really felt unnecessary and it it causes more questions than answers like why does everyone look the same age why does you know uh charles and magneto look pretty much the same for three decades and then from 1992 to 2000 they suddenly turn into patrick stewart and ian mckellen like that's a problem i think that's been going with the x-men films but it was really really obvious here um i really also uh I was trying to make this like, oh, I'm going to get all the good stuff out first, but the bad stuff just keeps kind of coming up, so I'm just going to jump into it. Uh, the villains sucked. The villains really sucked in this. Um, they were the Dabari uh, race, and Jessica Chastain played Vuk, or Vuk, or who gives a Vuk. Um, it just, like, they, they didn't matter. And I get that, like, the Dabari or whatever, like, made an appearance in the comics because Phoenix Force destroyed their world and everything. But were the were the Shi'ar too busy for this film? The Shi'ar, just such a high-concept thing that Fox was like, nah, we gotta give them, you know, bargain bin scrolls. I just, I think that was a poor choice, and them kind of going away from the actual phoenix story was uh unfortunate because it was weak and it didn't serve anybody to have these characters here they didn't make an impact they were uh just useless shape-shifting characters that really amounted to these are the chitari all over again in the final act um i will say in the act structure uh, it went from first act was really good, second act was nah, and then third act was not good at all. Um, you can tell that they did a lot of extensive reshoots because the entire third act seems to be from a completely different movie. And I think that it's really apparent and it shows that this film um, just didn't know what it wanted to be. And especially after the reshoots, no one knew what was going on. Um, 
This is amid reports that apparently the original draft of this did involve the Skrulls before Captain Marvel came out, and they had to reshoot everything. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I just... These villains sucked. They should have focused on Jean. Um, if they did want to bring in an alien race, bring in the Shi'ar. They have the most to do with the Dark Phoenix saga. Um, and it was just... It was irritating. It was really irritating. Uh, when it comes to the supporting cast, I do want to give a couple shout-outs. I think this is the best Scott Summers we've had in the uh, X-Films as a whole, period. Uh, I was one of the people who was not sold on Ty Sheridan when he was cast as Scott, but he does a lot of great work in this film uh, for what they give him, which is not a lot. They do really good work by him, and it's sad, again, because him and Sophie Turner, uh, they have chemistry. It's not, you know knock your socks off chemistry but they work well together and i would have loved to see that relationship evolve between the two of them uh they also this is the best use of cyclops's powers in any of the x films period um just the concussive force that he has with his blasts uh there's one point where he does what i have been waiting for them to do in the films which is a trademark of his ability in the comics where uh one of his abilities is spatial awareness so he can ricochet his beams off of stuff to hit stuff it's basically captain america's shield but with concussive force um and they have a moment where he just ricochets something off and hits you know somebody with his uh his blasts and i also loved in the uh early parts in the initial act in the scene where they're trying to get to the uh shuttle it's spinning too much so like scott we gotta slow it down we gotta blow up one of the uh the thrusters so it like drops him down into the like bottom part of the blackbird and they have it set up where it's just like you know he gets into the gunner position but the guns aren't actually guns it's just like a little thing to focus out his uh his eye beams and i thought that was super cool I really liked that. I really dug that. Um, it felt like they were using the technology to its fullest when it comes to the Blackbird, when it comes to using uh, their team's powers in different situations. Because you could see that being used in a bunch of different situations. So I really liked that. And it also, um, I think as well, uh, sold this idea that the uh, X-Men don't need weapons because they are the weapons. So I liked that. Uh, what I didn't like very much was Hank. Um, I didn't like what they did to him here. Again, he felt wildly out of character. Uh, Beast, I just... First of all, I'm really bothered by the whole serum thing. The serum thing bothers me. I just, I don't understand it. If they didn't want to put him in makeup... Or if the actor didn't want to be in makeup, if Nicholas Holt didn't want to be in makeup, don't, don't sign on to play the character. And if you didn't, you know, you signed on for the first one, and you didn't like it, don't sign on for any more. Like it just felt like more of an actor choice than a narrative choice. And the whole idea behind Beast is that he learns to grow with the. Uh, disfigurement, I guess, the evolution of his powers that turn him into the blue hairy form that he has. And it just, it felt forced and it, it just, it bothered me. Um, Magneto, uh, I just, he didn't need to be in this. He didn't really, um, I think, uh, contribute a whole lot. Um, we saw Genosha, or I'm sure it was supposed to be Genosha, it didn't feel like Genosha to me. But um, 
basically they rehashed the the character arc that he had in Apocalypse where it's like, oh, you know, he's retired to this, you know, remote community and then he's brought back into the fold because of things that are out of his control. And I just, I just wasn't a fan and I think it wasn't a particularly uh, spotlighted role for Magneto or Michael Fassbender who has been one of the highlights of the X-Men franchise and I think just like Charles like he was wasted here he really didn't figure into the plot and if they weren't going to give him you know a lot to do I don't think they should have included him Um, he had a cool moment he had a couple cool moments in the final act Uh, I don't know why he brought the subway out from the ground in the first place but then when he you know starts disconnecting or he crushed a subway car at one point and i thought to myself okay if you could have done that the whole time why not gather all of the uh aliens into a so into one of the cars and then just crush them but he does that once doesn't do it again doesn't do it before that so i don't know um nightcrawler if you've seen the film you know what i'm talking about um, there's a scene where, I mean, the entire film is Nightcrawler just kind of being like, oh, I don't know what's going on, I'm just kind of along for the ride. But then uh, some guy who he's never met before uh, gets killed. And so he goes on this murderous rampage. And I get that these are aliens. And, like, he's, you know, the son of Azazel and possibly a mistake. They never follow up on that in this timeline. But um, he just starts killing these aliens. Like, he shoves his tail through one of their's head. He bamfs one of them in front of the train with this, like, freaky-looking smile. It just, it felt like a complete left turn for a character who we really haven't gotten to spend a lot of time with anyway. And I didn't like what they did with him. It felt out of character. It felt like this could have been a different different spot for a different mutant. Um, And then finally, Mystique. Um, Jennifer Lawrence was clearly over the X-Men franchise after Days of Future Past and at this point I am over her character Um, she didn't figure into anything past the first half of the film and you don't really miss her going into the second film Uh, her death really drives a lot of characters arcs throughout the second half of the film but it's just who cares i mean she obviously didn't care enough um her power is showcased at no point in this uh in this film other than to morph into blonde jennifer lawrence because she doesn't want to wear the makeup so that's another thing that's just irritating and i think if again if they want didn't want to wear the makeup don't sign on for these characters um so it's just her impact really isn't felt here and her leading the x-men i always thought was a weird choice um, it should have been Cyclops. He doesn't really get a whole lot of time to lead here, but I, um, and he's not going to get to in this iteration. So it's a shame. It's a shame because Ty Sheridan, you saw, was doing a lot of the best work of Cyclops, if not the best Cyclops work in the entire franchise. So that's a shame. Um, speaking of the, uh, the aliens, I just, what? Um... I just didn't care about them. They weren't great. Uh, Jessica Chastain, once again, just a useless character. They they didn't explain the rules. Why could she contain some of the Phoenix Force? Um, what made her so special? Uh, they never explained any of that. And I think it just... 
came out looking weak. If you had taken them out of the entire movie and made it just about uh, Sophie Turner's Jean Grey, it would have been a stronger film for it. Um, the Phoenix, I liked the use of the Phoenix power in this. She seemed extraordinarily powerful, extraordinarily uh, OP. Any scene that she was in, but it was always like uh, X-Men show up, Jean does something, Jean flies away, everybody mopes, Jean does her, you know, I don't know what's going on, and then we just, you know, rinse and repeat twice. And uh, I thought it was, it was cool at the very end when she was just wasting uh, aliens with her phoenix powers, but then, you know, she goes up, she explodes, and then she's, you know, the phoenix is seen, you know, flying in the atmosphere or in space or whatever. Um, just, it was fine. Once again, Sophie Turner really carried the movie on her back, and uh, it shows, because there's not a whole lot of time put into other characters or other concepts. Uh, the ending stuff, um, I'm looking through my notes right now, uh, they were really trying to complete the circle, and I get that, uh, bringing us up to the timeline of the first X film. Uh, this movie takes place in 1992, once again, you'd never know it, but... Um, it, you know, has some nice moments at the very in like the ending montage. They turned the school into the Jean Grey school, which I was always a fan of in the comics. Um, Beast officially becomes headmaster and is blue, so cool. I guess does he stop taking the, you know, his formula, his cure or whatever? Um, I wasn't even. I'll be honest with you. The most exciting part of the end. Uh, ending montage for me was possibly seeing Quentin Quire in the uh, in the school, and you you used to see that a lot in the X Men films. Like when they're going through the school, these kids would be running through, and you'd be like, "Oh, that's that character. Oh, that's that character." And it got steadily less and less throughout the films. But um, this was a cool thing. I don't think they officially named him, but it was definitely Quentin Quire. Shaved back and sides, haircut, rocking the Macklemore cut. There's no other character in the X-Men comics who has that haircut. It's clearly Quentin Quire, so I liked that. Um, what else happened in this montage? Um, um, not really anything I'm trying to think. Um, they really they really took a lot of their characters off the board for most of this. Uh, Storm was kind of a non-factor. She had a couple sassy lines here and there, but they didn't really focus on her much, which is a shame. Um, they took Quicksilver out real quick. After the first Jean Grey freak out, he gets sidelined. So that's unfortunate. I liked how they did it. The effects were, you know, of varying degrees, but when he was running and uh, she kind of took his platforms out from beneath him and then he just got just fucked up by all the debris, I really... I liked that, but it also took him out for the rest of the film, and we weren't able to use him. So no big uh, Quicksilver set piece in this film, unlike the previous two films. And then, um, but he's back and ready to go, you know, once the film is at its end. Uh, characters are teaching in the school or whatever, and they're back to, you know, status quo. But uh, the best part of this, um, of the little ending here was Charles Xavier, who is now retired, and is, you know, a, a very fit and beefy looking, like, what, 75-year-old at this point? Um, sitting in Paris, Eric Lenscher comes up, sits across from him, and they have a nice little, uh, 
nice little game of chess kind of calling back to their initial stuff um i really liked the moment where uh you know magneto's setting up the board and he goes um i'll go easy on you and charles kind of looks at him and it's like he doesn't even need to read his mind but he does and he's like no you won't and Magneto just kind of gives him this knowing smile. And it brought me back to first class and this idea of Fassbender and McAvoy having such good chemistry with each other and this hope that these characters were going to uh, be in good hands with this character or uh, with this creative team in this timeline. And it's kind of sad that this, you know, completing the circle deal really went off with kind of a whimper. And that, I think, really kind of illustrates the idea that this is the end of an era um the x-men franchise officially goes out not with a bang but with a whimper um this film was not as strong as i needed it to be this film had good points and it had stuff that i liked but overall it just felt like uh, people were scrambling to put this together and to get this out and i think it's you know it's for the best this film i think probably is you know two or three years past its expiration date logan probably was the last film that they should have made but i uh i respect that they wanted to keep doing business and wanted to keep telling stories but after apocalypse a lot of people were really disenchanted with the new blood in the x-men universe and this really didn't make anything better which is a shame because of all the people that were involved um, but yeah, this is officially an end of an era. All of these films are now gone and dusted. Uh, no end credit sequence or anything like that, which makes sense because this is the end. But um, yeah, that's it for Dark Phoenix. I liked certain things that I didn't think I was going to like. I, I don't think it's as bad as people are saying. Like, this is a dumpster fire. This is the worst X-Men movie ever. But um, it's bad. It's not great. Um, I kind of, you know, going into a final verdict, I think we really uh, described it best on our Twitter, at GeekSplainPod, check us out, give us a follow, uh, where I basically said, you know, immediately coming out of the theater, uh, not the worst X-Men movie, but it's close. So that's what it is. Um, I'll tell you from my viewing experience, I went in Friday morning, uh, opening day, went at like a 10.30 a.m. showing, and there was no one in the theater. I was the only person in this theater seeing this movie, which was kind of surreal, because I don't go to movies a lot by myself, and like when I went uh, by myself this one time, I was truly by myself. So I got to stretch out, it was nice, I got to relax. But um, yeah, I think that tells us all we need to know. Again, we talked about the box office numbers earlier. Uh, being the worst in franchise history, and I think this is going to continue to be that way. Um, if I had to give it our Geeksplained arbitrary ratings out of five, I would probably give this like a two. A two out of five, and that's being super generous. Um, it's not good. I'm kind of glad that this is all over and that we can look towards what Marvel and uh, Disney is going to do with the X-Men going forward. But uh, yeah, so that is Dark Phoenix. Um, now we are going to see where exactly that places in our official rankings for the XCU. That's right, the X-Men Cinematic Universe is finally at its end, and I'm going to be ranking all of them 
here. We're looking at 10 films uh, going all the way from 10 to 1, and I am going to start off with the worst, which is not Dark Phoenix. It is actually X3. X-Men The Last Stand is our number 10 position. This film was just bad. Um, I think a lot of people look at this now um, and with, you know, distance making the heart grow fonder there have been people who have looked at this as like oh you know it's not as bad it's better than dark phoenix and i can tell you after watching it again it is absolutely not uh this film was really uh a lot of people had a lot of high expectations for it including me coming off of the great uh x-men 2 but i was completely disappointed uh phoenix is just wasted here cyclops is dusted immediately in this film um, there's just a lot of bad that happens in this, and you can tell that they were scrambling to put this together, much like Dark Phoenix, because Brian Singer left, and uh, they gave it to Brett Ratner, who completely just botched everything because Singer was going off to direct Superman Returns, and that ended up being really good for him. So, um, you can tell the sarcasm there. But I really, uh, this movie is just, anytime I look at it, paired up against other films it's just it is the worst for me uh number nine we have x-men origins wolverine just barely just barely beating out uh last stand for me i have a soft spot in my heart for this movie um there's a lot of things in this film i liked this was our first glimpse at ryan reynolds as deadpool um we got certain characters that i really enjoyed their uh characterization of blob i thought was cool um the sick uh motorcycle sequences here the really bad cgi the best part i think besides hugh jackman and him trying his best to make um uh just trash into treasure is uh sabertooth sabertooth uh, played by Leif Schreiber is a treasure and I'm sad that this is the only film that he appears in because he does such good work with this character and apparently he was going to show up in Logan but they decided to cut it at the last second and he was the breakout star for this film for me I really enjoyed it or I really enjoyed him but of course the cgi for most of this is bad the storytelling is not good uh baraka pool is all i need to say about that the final act is awful and just the plot holes are really just inexcusable and unforgivable so x-men origins wolverine is uh, at number nine at number eight and i realize that this is going to piss a lot of people off at number eight is x-men the very first x-men movie um it's not that it's bad but it has aged so hard over the last 19 years that re-watching it again, it does not hold up. Um, the effects are really, really bad. Uh, a lot of the dialogue is not great. You know, you had your star players, Ian McKellen as Magneto, Patrick Stewart as Xavier, uh, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, and that's about it. Everyone else is just phoning it in or doesn't really know what they're doing. Uh, Lot, lots of problems with uh, what they're being given. Anna Paquin was still an unproven uh, actress at that point. They character assassinate Scott Summers, Cyclops, the whole just down downhill spiral that he goes on starts with this film. Um, Halle Berry just phoning it in. Um, I don't even have to go into, do you know what happens when 
a toad is struck by lightning. Just it's just awful. the The script is really bad, and the effects are not good. It just has not aged well. Um, it's not a bad film, but I just it's nowhere near as good as I remember it being. Uh, so that is number eight. Number seven is X Men Apocalypse. Um, this film kind of like uh, X-Men The Last Stand had a lot of promise and a lot of uh, hype behind it I mean it's Apocalypse it's their Thanos he's the big bad Um, they're going to be introducing Four Horsemen they're going to be introducing you know this new cast of characters uh, the younger versions of Cyclops Storm Gene all of our favorites and I say that with quotation you know quotations for uh, podcast listeners Um, it's just it's you know it had a lot of promise, and I liked certain elements of this. Um, Quicksilver, always a treat. Um, the character work with Magneto could have been better, but I liked what they did with him here. Um, the explanation for Xavier going bald is hilarious to me. Um, having the original Storm uh origin for the most part, her being kind of a thief in Egypt was really cool. I liked that. I liked... Uh, the people they got for certain roles, um, Gene, Scott, Storm, I liked them. Uh, I actually really liked, uh, I can't remember her name, but the actress they got for Psylocke, they did the best they could with her. It was a costume ripped straight from the comics. Uh, so that was really cool. I liked, uh, what they did with Archangel, um, there's, they really didn't give him anything, but, like, what they did with him was fine, uh, Storm, great. Uh, I liked that they kind of they killed Havoc in the first act to really set up uh, this team. I also really wish that they had kept in the mall scenes for the younger X-Men. Uh, Jubilee was robbed in this film and the next film, never forget. Uh, but for all the promise that they had, I also really liked the ending stuff with the Mindscape. Uh, battling Apocalypse on the Astral Plane with Xavier and Jean and her doing her badass uh, walk out onto the uh, onto nothing with her Phoenix Force manifesting, which, again, is a plot hole that they never follow up with in Dark Phoenix. But um, overall, this movie was really, really disappointing, and um, it is sitting comfortably at number seven. Number six, it's Dark Phoenix. Just barely. Um, I think... This might change as time goes on, but I think with uh, X-Men Apocalypse, I had higher expectations, and it hit lower. Uh, It hit me in the gut with the final product, whereas with Dark Phoenix, I kind of knew what I was getting into going into it. Um, And like I said, for the points that I liked about this, they had a lot of good stuff, and you could tell that there were good ideas and good concepts, but the execution of them was just not strong. At number six, or no, that was number six. At number five, we have X2, X-Men United. Um, This is the best of the original trilogy, and that is reflected in this list because it is the highest of the original trilogy. Uh, Breaking into the top five, it is just, I think, a great X-Men film, especially for the time. Uh, For the time that it came out, it was really the best that it could be. And when it came to comic book movies, this was kind of the pinnacle for a while until we got into stuff like uh, The Dark Knight, like uh, Iron Man, stuff like that, everything that came forward. This was something that I really think is... uh, 
is I I I'm not going to say overrated in the way that it's like, oh, this is crap and everyone thinks it's good. But again, it's one of those things where the uh, the Brian Singer trilogy, the original X-Men trilogy, doesn't age as well as I would like it to. And this film is pretty much uh, 15 years old. So um, it still, you know, mostly holds up for a lot of the great themes when it comes to... Um, Wolverine's search for his past, Alkali Lake, the war on mutants, the uh, the killer mansion scene, the mansion raid, when uh, all of the soldiers come through and all the X-Men are basically, you know, surprised by it. I really liked Lady Deathstrike for as much of a uh, mute hitman as she was in this. Um, they had a lot of great moments in this. I really liked Pyro as well. Um, this was a good, good one. This is, this is, we're starting to get into the good, uh, zone here but i really liked it it's something that i think is definitely worth a rewatch uh number four we have the wolverine and a lot of people are going to be surprised that it's this high and that it beat out uh x-men 2 but for me watching it again this film is better than i remember it being especially if you watch the um the uh extended cut which is i'm judging all of these by their extended versions um the Wolverine is good. It's really, really good. Uh, there's some goofy stuff in it, but, like, this is the first movie where it was, like, holy shit, Wolverine's killing people, there's blood. Like, it really, like, I think drove the point home on how brutal Wolverine can be as a character. And I really enjoyed the fact that they allowed Hugh Jackman to kind of let loose. And I think this was the tipping point into Hugh Jackman really feeling comfortable in the character and really being, like, I'm making this my own. I don't have anything to prove here to anyone but myself. And you could tell. He is ripped. He is absolutely shredded in this film. And this really kicked off the uh, the how shredded and built can Hugh Jackman get for every X-Men film kind of uh, stream through this. So uh, overall, this is definitely worth a rewatch. You would be surprised how good this film is. Uh, number three, X-Men First Class. X-Men First Class, I think, is the perfect entry point into the X-Men franchise, and it was built that way. This is going back into the 60s. This is really, I think, the best that they did when it came to X-Men period pieces. Um, after Days of Future Past, when it came to Apocalypse and it came to... Um, Dark Phoenix, they really didn't know how to make it distinctly feel like the period that they were trying to set it in, but First Class feels like a 60s story. I love Michael Fassbender, I love James McAvoy, Jennifer Lawrence is actually trying here, Nicholas Holt is doing great, he was still uh, just coming off of Skins, and he, w he had something to prove. You have freaking Kevin Bacon as the villain here. Um, what more can I ask? What more do you want? Uh, they also completely faithfully shot for shot remake the opening of the first X-Men film where uh, uh, Magneto is in the prison camp as a child. Really, really good stuff. And they, of course, uh, expand upon it with Shaw and all the stuff that they have going on there. Uh, negatives to it, uh, the team was not as... I mean, they didn't pick heavy hitters here, and I think that was the point to get us invested in these characters outside of it. Um, January Jones as Emma Frost, I think, was wasted here. Uh, she didn't do the best that I think they could have really done with that character. 
Um, the effects are also, they're still trying to figure out what they really want everything to be. And I really was hoping for, um, I think, more recognizable mutants. Like, we had Beast, uh, we had Xavier and Magneto and Mystique. But besides that, everyone was kind of like, oh, these are interesting characters. And you could tell because most of those characters did not come back for future installments. But I still really enjoyed it. It's one of my favorite X, uh, X-Men movies. And I think it's... if no one knows if you're if somebody is looking to get introduced into the x-men this is the movie you show them bar none uh number two we have x-men days of future past um this is i think the pinnacle of x-men movies this is the infinity war of x-men movies where everyone is coming together to face this threat it is the darkest of the x-men films just the x-men team films and i think this is just I think this is a highly underrated film, um, especially if you're looking at the Rogue Cut, which, of course, is what I'm judging this off of. Um, filling in some of the plot holes from the theatrical cut, uh, this film is just fantastic. This is the best X-Men team film out of the entire franchise, and it's adapting one of the most famous storylines from the comics, and they do it, I think, to perfection. This is where we have, I think, Wolverine at his best when it comes to his physique, his characterization in a team environment. Um, this is Michael Fassbender and James McAvoy doing some of the best work in the entire franchise. Uh, this is the introduction of Evan Peters' Quicksilver. He is... This, this scene is, in my perspective, so much better than the one that's in Apocalypse. Yes, the Apocalypse one is bigger, and he's running through the entire mansion, saving people and whatnot, but this came so out of left field, especially because this came after Avengers Age of Ultron, and everyone was like, Avengers did Quicksilver way better than this guy could ever do Quicksilver. And then we saw that that was terribly, terribly wrong. Um... This Quicksilver uh, was fantastic. The Sentinels, bringing them in, I thought was great. Uh, tying up some of the loose ends from First Class, I thought was really good. And really tying together the generations. It was a passing of the torch film, especially if you look at the scene between Patrick Stewart and James McAvoy, Xavier do Xavier. Excellent work by both of those actors. And getting to kind of say goodbye to the old era and ushering in the new, I thought was really, really good. Plus, all the time travel, I'm a sucker for time travel. Um, there was some really great just effects here. Um, this is, I think, Jennifer Lawrence at her peak mystique. And they really tried to make this as good as it could be. They really tried to make this as amazing as the Days of Future Past storyline deserved to be. And then you also got to see how well McAvoy and Fassbender emulated Stewart and McKellen while still making it their own. And I really loved just seeing them act opposite to each other and seeing two best friends or former best friends at two opposite points in their lives. So I really enjoyed it. I think this is the best X-Men team film out of all of them, but it is not the best X-Men film. That honor goes to, of course, number one, which is Logan. This film... I could spend another hour just talking about how good this film is. I won't, but I absolutely could. I've seen this film 
I think four or five times. Um, one of those was the noir version, which I absolutely love. If you've watched the original Logan cut and you haven't watched the noir version, do it. It completely recontextualizes the film and it is excellent. Um, Logan is just the pinnacle of the XCU. This is the best film, hands down. This film, I think, elevates itself beyond comic book movies, beyond X-Men films, into the ranks of The Dark Knight, Winter Soldier, where they are taking genre films, in this case a western, an old western, um, and really just putting uh, comic book trappings around it to tell an incredible character-driven story. This is Hugh Jackman putting his all saying goodbye to the character, but also us saying goodbye to Patrick Stewart's Charles Xavier, who has been playing the character just as long as Hugh Jackman had been playing Wolverine. 19... Uh, yeah, right around 18 to 19 years. Um, this was just incredible. It really, really was. Uh, after the Wolverine and X-Men Origins, a lot of people didn't know how to feel about Logan. But as soon as it came out, everyone hailed it as one of the best uh, comic book films ever. And I think it definitely deserves that kind of critical acclaim. This was just fantastic from top to bottom. The characters that they had in there, Calabac, played by Stephen Merchant, was fantastic. Laura... X-23, so good, just so freaking good. Uh, Daphne King is the actress, and I'm really hoping she does more work, and she gets more work because she was so good in this film. Um, having Logan face off essentially against the Wolverine uh, in the final act was excellent, and it didn't fall into the common X-Men final act trope where the final act just falls apart because of CGI nonsense. This really felt like a personal battle, a personal struggle, and a character who is coming to terms with himself and his own mortality. If you have not watched this in a little while, watch this again, especially if you have not seen the noir version, watch the noir version. This film is just the best that the X-Men uh, has to offer, that the X-Franchise really could put out. And like I said, if they had finished off here they would have gone off on a high note rather than the low note that they did by producing Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix following this. Um, and that is it for the rankings. To recap, number 10, uh, X-Men Last Stand. Number uh, 9, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Number 8, X-Men 1. Number 7, X-Men Apocalypse. Number 6, Dark Phoenix. Number 5, x Two X Men United, number four The Wolverine, number three X Men First Class, number two X Men Days of Future Past, and number one Logan. I am going to uh, mention because I'm sure at this point you're asking. Now wait a second, what about the Deadpool movies? Now when it comes to the Deadpool movies, because I went back and forth on this because they were in my original rankings, but I decided to take them out because they're more X Men adjacent than being in the X-Men uh, franchise, and that has to do a lot with, I think, and I was explaining this uh, earlier to a friend, how these films could be in a completely separate X-Men continuity, and we would never know it, in a rebooted Marvel continuity, and we would never know it because none of the main line X-Men appear in the two Deadpool the two Deadpool films, and any characters that uh, do appear are radically different from the characters we've seen in the previous X-Men films, and also in the argument between, oh, what about the Wolverine films? Those films were directly, I think, were directly uh, 
influenced by the mainline X-Men series and also featured characters that were in that X-Men series. So you could tell that these movies were part of that universe. With the Deadpool films, you could easily say these are now in the Marvel universe and this is just what they are now and where the X-Men are when it comes to the MCU and it wouldn't change anything. It wouldn't recontextualize anything. So um, if I had to, because they are honorable mentions, um, I personally think Deadpool 1 is better than Deadpool 2. I just rewatched Deadpool 2 today and I still think the first Deadpool, just for what it was and how surprising and exciting it was with what they had to work with, I still think Deadpool beats out Deadpool 2 by just that much. I love Cable. I really do. I think Josh Brolin's Cable is incredible, and I hope we get more of him. We probably won't, but I would love that. And uh, Ryan Reynolds was born to play Deadpool, so he is incredible. If I had to put them into the rankings just as a uh, package deal, I would probably slot them in right in between Wolverine, or the Wolverine and First Class. So it would be uh, the top five would be Deadpool 2, Deadpool 1, First Class, Days of Future Past, and Logan. So that is it for the definitive, completely objective, totally not objective, this is my disclaimer, this is just my opinion, if you have a different opinion, please let me know, um, completely definitive, the only list that matters for ranking the XCU, the X-Men Cinematic Universe, it has been a just a ride it has been a hell of a ride these last 19 years going from the original x-men all the way here to dark phoenix and all i can say is so long farewell uh good night and here's looking forward to the x-men and everything that is adjacent to them entering into the mcu so let me know what you thought of Dark Phoenix. Would love to know if you saw it, if you didn't see it, why you didn't see it. It's probably a good reason. Um, and uh, yeah, let me know what your rankings are for the X-Men Cinematic Universe, where you would put things, whether you include the Deadpool movies into your rankings, and whether I'm completely off base with my choices. I would love to have that conversation with you on either of our social media or through email once again at geeksplain pod that's at geeksplain pod or through geeksplain at gmail.com and that is going to do it for um this uh main course the x-men um i would love to do more x-men content in the future uh possibly as part of our pitch it segment that was all the way back in episode 25 where we pitched uh my version of a spider-man film so keep an eye out for that. Um, I'm also going to be looking for other things to review in our weekly review once Swamp Thing wraps up. And speaking of which... How's that for a segue?
Of course, that intro can only mean it is time for this week's weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing the live-action Swamp Thing show that is on the DC Universe streaming service and app. Uh, If you haven't jumped on this, check this out. It's really cool, especially if you're a horror fan. It's been really good so far, and we are reviewing episode number two, which is titled Worlds Apart. Uh, We... This episode, I think, is a great escalation from the first episode, because sometimes you see strong first episode, weak episode two, three, four, and then it gets right back up with episode five or somewhere around there. This episode does not fall into that pattern. This episode was really, really good right from the get-go and uh, gives us our first full look at Swamp Thing, and he looks fantastic. Um, the effects that they did for him, mostly practical, which is great, I think looks really, really good. I also, um, I didn't get to mention this, uh, last week, but I love the opening to this, uh, to this show. Just the opening, you heard it a little bit with the intro theme to this segment, but, um, I just love the imagery, the music, it really sets you up for knowing exactly what you're in for, which is a horror show. So I really enjoyed that. Um, a couple things that I thought were really interesting, uh, looks like Susie is somehow connected to the green, because she seems to be kind of in tune with, uh, Swamp Thing's emotions and his experiences, which I thought was really interesting. This episode also focused a lot on the relationship between, uh, Abby Arcane and the Sunderlands. Uh, we got a little bit of the interactions between Abby and uh, Mrs. Sunderland from last episode, where she blames her for her daughter's death. But uh, this one, uh, Mrs. Sunderland goes full psycho. She goes to see Madame Xanadu, who tells her basically, like, look, this stuff's in the past. Your daughter can't come back. Like, you have to let this go and move on with your life. And that is clearly not the case because at the very end of the episode we see that I guess she has pulled her daughter's dead body out of the swamp or something. It was very grudge-like and that bothered me. I have a deep set fear of the grudge movies and so that is not something that I'm excited to uh, revisit with this week's uh, upcoming episode. And then we also got to see Abby talking to uh, Mr. Sunderland who is a classic um just bigwig prick. Uh, he is the, you know, classic uh, blue collar, like, I brought, you know, jobs into this town, and this town now belongs to me kind of uh, perspective. And he's just, he's slimy, he's evil. And we find out during this episode that he is uh, responsible for all of the stuff that's going on when it comes to the accelerant, the diseases, because he is enlisting the help of Mr. Jason Woodrue, who has officially entered the field. Um, Jason Woodrue is just a total creep, and um, I love it. He is definitely being set up as, if not the main villain underneath uh, Mr. Sunderland, as a surprise villain for later on. Um, I'm re- I really liked his character work. Uh, he's going to be fun. He's going to be a fun character to follow through this season. Uh, when it comes to all the other stuff, I really enjoyed the gore, um, which is not something that I normally enjoy, but uh, the gore was on point for this uh, week's episode when it came to uh, when that one guy kills the patrol officer. Just... Ah, just hook through the head like uh. and then um, 
Swamp Thing using the green to pull this guy apart. Uh, the stuff with, like I said, um, Mrs. Cinderland's child is like, looking gross. Um, but we now have a direction. We now have a direction um, with the series. We know that Abby has now connected the dots. They didn't waste any time by uh, connecting the dots to Abby figuring out that Swamp Thing is actually Alec Holland. Um, we're also, we know that they're going to be on a collision course with uh, Jason Woodrue and Mr. Sunderland, and that more horrors are on their way. But the big thing for me here, and the thing that I think I'm going to, you know, kind of end this segment on, is that um, I miss Andy Bean, man. I really, uh, you could tell that this episode suffered from a lack of Andy Bean because uh, we do see in the episode that Abby uh, finds some of his video journals including all the way up to the point that he dies or just before and um, just his his just understanding of the Alan Holland character and putting his own spin on it I really missed him in this episode not getting to see him and that's nothing against the Swamp Thing actor he's doing a phenomenal job as Swamp Thing, but I just really, um, I really hope we get more of Andy Bean playing Alec Holland because he was sorely missed in this episode. Um, that's it for this week's weekly review. Let me know what you thought. Let me know what you think of the Swamp Thing show. Once again, I'm really bummed that Swamp Thing's canceled, especially with how strong these last two episodes have been and how strong I can assume the rest of the season is going to go. I'm going to take a quick sipping my water here and it sucks because you can tell that they put time into this they really put time into making this as good as it can be and as good of a swamp thing show as that character truly deserves so it's a bummer it really sucks um i really hope that as strong as this show is it shows the people in charge that hey this has an audience this is this show was made with love, and this deserves to be either renewed or picked up by whether it's CW, HBO would be incredible, um, whoever ends up picking this up. They really put this time in, and they deserve to have their stories told. But that is going to do it for this week's weekly review. Let me know what you thought of Swamp Thing. Let me know what you think of the news of Swamp Thing being canceled. But for now, let's jump over to this week's Comics Countdown. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I'll be talking about the comics that I think you should be picking up, whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you pick up your comics. These are the ones that I think you should be definitely checking out. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course... I Every synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. Uh, if you have a synopsis voice you would like to recommend or request, feel free to do so on any of our social media or through email. Let's go ahead and jump into the books this week. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six books, and we're kicking it off with Event Leviathan number one of six, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Alex Malieve. This is starting the big uh, Brian Michael Bendis DC crossover for this year. Um, I haven't made it very, uh, I haven't been very subtle about my dislike for Brian Michael Bendis's run in DC so far. The only book that I've actually been enjoying is Young Justice, and, um, 
any stuff that's been with Superman or anything has not been great. And this book is kind of spiraling out of the events of his Superman books, so I'm not really looking forward to this, but it's a big book and I think you should uh, definitely be checking it out, especially if you have been enjoying his work on Superman. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The groundbreaking and always inventive t- Oh, God. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get through this. The groundbreaking and always inventive team of writer Brian Michael Bendis and artist Alex Maleev reunite on a mystery thriller that stretches across the DC universe and touches every character from Batman to Superman to the question to Talia al Ghul. With startling ease, a newly dangerous and aggressive leviathan wipes out all its competition and now turns its sights to molding the world to its vision of order. Can the new threat's growth be stopped? And who's guiding its new agents of chaos? So I'm I'm sorry. I I just oh man. The groundbreaking and always inventive. I I Oh, I don't want this to turn into a rant segment, so we're going to move on. But I just, I think that's hilarious. I think that is hilarious, especially when you look at the overarching uh, reception to Brian Michael Bendis' work in DC so far. I just, we're going to move on. We're going to move on. Uh, next up, we have Superior Spider-Man number 7, written by Christos Gage, with art by Mike Hawthorne. Um, this is a War of the Realms tie-in, and it's the one that I've been waiting for, because it is Superior Spider-Man teaming up with one of my favorite teams of the past year. Let's see if you uh, if you can pick out which team it is. Let's jump into the synopsis here. War of the Realms tie-in. Like the rest of America, the West Coast is overrun with frost giants and in chaos. But Otto Octavius doesn't settle for chaos and will win the War of Realms single-handedly. Well, maybe not single-handedly. He needs minions. Super minions. So he recruits the West Coast Avengers. Uh Uh-oh. So yeah, the West Coast Avengers are back! Um, I made it pretty clear that I was really disappointed by the uh, cancellation of their book. And so having them show up in one of my favorite Marvel books that's going on right now is really exciting. And having uh, Superior Spider-Man kind of clash with their uh, eccentric personalities is going to be really interesting. Especially if you think about Otto Octavius and Quentin Quire. Um, This is going to be great. I really didn't piece it together in my mind that they were both in the same area because they're both in California. I mean, uh, Superior Spider-Man is in San Francisco and they're in LA, but like they're a stone's throw away from each other. So I'm really excited. So that's going to be really good. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 1005 written by Peter J. Tomasi with art by Brad Walker. Uh, this has been really good with the reveal that, um, the Arkham Knight is a woman, which I totally called. I totally called. Go back a few episodes, and you'll see. You'll see that I totally called it. Um, 
uh, I'm excited to see her uh, kind of evolve as a character. I hope this isn't just a one-off arc for her. I hope she becomes a recurring villain and really gets to stretch her legs like so many of her contemporaries. But either way, Peter J. Tomasi has been doing a great job in Detective Comics. It took me a second to get used to Brad Walker's art, but it's been really, really, uh, I think, growing with each issue. And he's been getting better and better, and I'm really excited to see where they go next with this. Let's jump into the synopsis here. The finale of the Occam Knight saga arrives as the Knight's surprising cult with an Occam Asylum unleashes its full power. Will Batman be swept under by the madness? Who is the Knight to have inspired so much loyalty? And is there any way of stopping them that won't just cause their legend to grow? That's an interesting synopsis, I think, because if something happens that like ends up, you know, tearing the Arkham Knight, you know, apart, uh, the idea that you could really express kind of a cult following behind the Arkham Knight, especially if she ends up falling in this uh, final confrontation, I think is really, really cool. So definitely keep your eye on this book. Next up, a book that I think you should also be keeping an eye on is Invaders number 6, written by Chip Zdarsky with art by both Carlos Magno and Butch Guis. Uh, this is it. This is the completion of the arc. I don't know if Invaders is going to be continuing on past this or if this is it for the book. Um, I'll do my research and kind of figure that out, but I have been loving every single issue of this book that's been coming out. It's been excellent from start to finish, every single issue, and I really am excited to see where the conclusion goes from here. Um, let's, uh, let's dive into the synopsis. I'm just, ah, it's been so good so far, bringing all the original invaders in, um, doing the Mad King storyline with Namor. Um, I love whenever Namor and Cap cross paths, so this has been really, really good. Let's jump into the synopsis. War Ghosts finale. Time has run out. Can Captain America save Namor after what he's done? Short, sweet, to the point. This is going to be a final clash between Namor and Cap. I am so ready for a throwdown and to give us some resolution when it comes to uh, Namor's deteriorating uh, mental state and all of the nukes that were just launched. So uh, this is a bombastic story. If you haven't read the previous five issues, get caught up, pick this issue up. It is definitely something you should be checking out. Next up, we have Flash number 72, written by Joshua Williamson with Howard Porter on art. Uh, this is a continuing Flash year one. I'm really, really... Uh, I've just been really enjoying Flash year one so far. The first two issues have been really good. Uh, young Barry Allen going into the future and seeing Old Man Barry uh, has struck a chord with a lot of people. A lot of people now want to see an Old Man Barry comic. Um, I think the old man comic uh, climate right now is pretty uh, pretty full as it is, so I don't want to say that just yet, but I think there are definitely stories to be told with that character. So let's jump into the synopsis here. <sighs> Flash Year One continues. Things are not looking pretty for the Flash. You just got a scarlet butt handed to him by the turtle. If Barry Allen thought being a hero was going to be easy, he'd better think again after this beating, but will it be enough to detour his destiny? Yes. Super quick. All right. Uh, yeah, this has been super good. I've been really enjoying it. I'm really excited to see uh, where they go with this story because they're recontextualizing a lot of the uh, 
you know, the basic tenets that we hold to Barry Allen in his origin. Uh, the cover shows his rogues, his super familiar rogues. We see uh, Captain Cold. We see a little bit of Golden Glider. Um, I'm really excited to see what they do with the turtle, personally. Um, he's never been, you know, a top five, even a top ten Flash villain. But I like how they're trying to raise the, uh, raise the stock of him as a villain and seeing Barry grow into his Flash persona is always a fun time. But the big book for this week, the book that I think is a must get, is Spider-Man Life Story number four of six. This is the 90s. We're finally here. Um, this was the time that I got into Spider-Man. Uh, this was the time that I think a lot of people got into Spider-Man with the cartoon and all the stuff that was going on in the 90s. I'm really interested. The uh, I'm looking at the cover right now, and it's kind of teasing an overweight Spider-Man. So uh, at this point, he's so he was 16 in the 60s. So if we're going by decades, uh, he was 26 in the 70s. He was 36 in the 80s, and now we're going in the 90s. He's in his 40s. So he is in his 40s, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this is the time when a lot of people you know, go through their midlife crisis. So we're going to see how the 90s impact Spider-Man. This is the time of the Clone Saga. This is the time of Maximum Carnage. This is the time when Venom really came into his own as a character. So we're going to see if those stories happen to uh, impact him. But this was also during the Cold War. This is during a lot of uh, unease and upheaval when it came to our political climate. So I'm really interested to see what they do with this. This is, of course, written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Mark Bagley. And let's jump into the synopsis here. The real-time life story of Spider-Man continues. Spider-Man's life enters the 1990s. The Cold War is no longer cold as Peter returns to a world gone mad. But will he let that madness infect him and his family? So I'm interested to see where this goes. Uh, the last that we left off in the 90s was really, really cool. Dealt with the black suit, um, a potential Venom storyline with Kraven. Uh, so I'm really interested in seeing this. I love this story so far. Pick up the first three issues if you haven't yet. This is a... This is a Spider-Man story for the ages. This is something that's going to be stick around, sticking around for a long time. When you're thinking about Spider-Man, you know, seminal Spider-Man stories, this is going to be one of those for sure. You've got two of the best people to ever work on Spider-Man, and the book has been just knocking it out of the park. Home runs every single time. We've got two more issues after this dealing with the 2000s and the 2010s, but the 90s was a big turning point for Spider-Man as a character, so this is definitely going to be a big issue. And that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Event Leviathan number 1 of 6, Superior Spider-Man number 7, Detective Comics number 1005, Invaders number 6, Flash number 72, and Spider-Man Life Story number 4 of 6. If you have any comics that you think I should be checking out, if you think I missed anything, feel free to let me know. Uh, I love discovering new comics all the time. I'm 
always, always down. I just uh, got a great recommendation for Peter Cannon Thunderbolt. So I'll definitely be checking that out and I'll let you guys know about it as well. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Um, thank you for listening all the way through to this. It really does us a uh, world of good. If you've been enjoying the stuff that we've been doing, feel free to give us a, uh, a rating and review on iTunes. Really helps us out, gets us out to more viewers like you. And uh, we are growing all the time. So I'm really excited. I would love to do more uh, collaborations with people, uh, more have guests on here to do interviews. So uh, just giving us a rating and review really helps us out. Uh, and if you give us, you know, a five-star rating, I will read your review on the next episode. So feel free to do that. Would love to read some reviews. And uh, yeah, let me know what you thought of Dark Phoenix. Let me know what you thought of the entire uh, X-Men Cinematic Universe. Do you have a favorite movie? Do you have a least favorite movie? What are your rankings? Um, do you think they should have ended with Logan? Uh, do you think there's still more stories to tell? And what do you think of the possibility of the new mutants? Uh, I forgot to mention that. That's still apparently coming, though I have a sneaking suspicion that it is going to be uh, canceled and possibly, if it is released, released on Disney+. Plus. So we'll see. But um, yeah, it's the end of an era. Uh, an era that I think went a little bit past its expiration date. But I'm really excited to see where the X-Men go from here, whether or not they join the MCU in the next five years or not. Um, but yeah, so look forward to uh, next episode. This is ex episode number 60. We're officially 60 episodes in. I'm really excited. Thank you for giving uh, me the support that uh, you have shown so far. It's been an incredible ride, and we're just going to keep getting bigger. We're almost up to 5,000 listeners on this podcast so thank you so much for the people who were there from the beginning as well as the people who've jumped on along the way uh, this has been great and I'm learning and growing all the time I was part of uh, the Saturday Night Geek uh, podcast Twitch stream a couple Saturdays ago and I had a great time and I got to see you know kind of what the next level for podcasting is and I'm excited to get to that point and beyond so definitely give us um once again give us uh rating reviews love that uh you guys have been amazing i'm looking at our uh our stats right now and i was just i was just looking over some uh different stuff and we have uh listeners from korea we have listeners from hungary i saw we have some listeners from budapest or budapest however you uh pronounce that i apologize for our listeners from budapest um yeah, and it's just, it's crazy because we've got I mean we've got listeners from Iran, we've got listeners from Greece, from Indonesia, from France, from the Czech Republic, from Ukraine. Uh, so thank you all to our worldwide audience. Thank you to our domestic audience as well. And I'm excited for us to continue on into 60 more episodes. So uh, look forward to episode number 61 next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will. See you next time. If I could save time in a bottle, the first thing that I'd like to do is to save every day till eternity passes away. Just to spend them with you If I could
could make days last forever If words could make wishes come true I'd save every day like a treasure And then again I would spend them with you But there never seems to be enough time To do the things you want to do once you find them Looked around enough to know that you're the one I want to go through time with. If I had a box just for wishes and dreams. That had never come true The box would be empty Except for the memory of how They were answered by you But there never seems to be enough time To do the things you want to do Once you find them I've looked around enough to know You're the one I want to go through. 